From Lanyon Bowdler Solicitors, this is The Legal Lounge. Here's your host, Amanda Jones. Hello and welcome to Season 2 of The Legal Lounge, where we've got some great content planned for you. If you haven't heard the shows in the first season yet, they're definitely worth checking out. You'll get an insight into many aspects of law in England and Wales, including divorce, mental capacity and claims for different types of injury. You can listen to these shows on your podcast app or by visiting lblaw.co.uk forward slash podcast. In this episode, solicitors Edward Rees and Neil Davis discuss the importance of seeking good legal advice when it comes to matters relating to the Court of Protection powers of attorney, wills and administration of estates. They illustrate the points by way of case studies, including one where a niece used an aunt's money to set up a reptile breeding business. Hello, I'm Edward and I'm joined today by, well, one of my favourite colleagues of all time, but also one of my favourite ever legal podcasters, Neil Davis. That's very kind of you, Edward. Well, you are to me the Melvin Bragg of Lanyon Bowdler legal (laughs) podcasting, it has to be said. That's very kind. Thank you very much. Today we're going to be touching on what I would describe as the darker side of private client practice. Uh, So this isn't lawyers who've gone over to the dark side in some kind of Star Wars. In most way. cases, not. No. In most cases, not, no. From your perspective, that might be the case. So your work is court of protection work, and you talked excellently about that when you did your podcast with, with Lucy. It was one of my favourite podcasts ever. Uh, but I think if you'd like to say what, what you're going to be focusing on where we're concentrating on these darker issues. Yeah, you know, so I think you were going to talk about, with the work you do, get, for people to get proper legal advice uh, and make sure that if they have got legal advice, then it's correct and, and right, and h- how to go about that and spot the right kind of firm, you know, that could help you. Whereas in the work I do, I'll be talking about instances where people just haven't taken the right advice or had the regard to legally what you can and can't do in the context of court of protection or powers of attorney when you're managing somebody else's affairs. And Neil, the, these case studies that you'll have, they're, they're, they're not cases you've dealt with yourself. Uh, one of them is a case that I have dealt with, but the other couple of cases are cases that were reported in the court of protection a few years ago. Excellent. You're right. I wanted to touch on why I think it always pays to get good advice, but but to focus down on some aspects of um, practice in, in, in wills, preparation of wills and administering people's estates that I've seen over the years that I find to be quite unsatisfactory. So I, what I wanted to do was to illustrate this with they're not necessarily case studies but they're drawn from experiences that I've had or where I've seen other practitioners or other firms doing things that I've thought is that really the the right way to deal with that and and really to to give people a a warning uh, about that and to make sure that whoever is dealing with the administration of your loved one's estate that you are able to ask the right questions at the outset of the matter and really hold that person to account. That's very important for people to be able to hear that. This works in all areas of legal practice. It's just that it's particularly sensitive where it's somebody's will and it's somebody's estate and people are are grieving and they therefore hand over the nitty-gritty of winding up the estate to somebody else. They want to be able to instruct that person and be 
assured that they're going to get on with the job and they can get on with their grieving. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't always happen. But even if they just want to hand the job over, they want to be able to hold that person to account. So horror stories from the the world of court of protection. I'll talk about those and that'll probably work quite nicely because as I said, I'll I'll be talking about instances where people just haven't had regard to even thinking about taking legal advice or having regard to what the law says you can and can't do in these circumstances. And then that would lead on to what you're going to talk about, which is where people actually have stopped and thought, well, let's get somebody to assist us in the legal profession and then how to do that properly. So the cases I'm going to talk about in the, in the court of protection are related to where people have been appointed uh, in, in one instance as attorneys for a family relation and in the other, other instance where people have been appointed as a deputy by the court of protection. I think that's important because in the latter type of case where people have been appointed as a deputy, they're supervised by the Office of the Public Guardian, so there's a degree of scrutiny right. that is ongoing. So they're tight, more tightly regulated. Yeah. The other case I'll talk about where somebody had been appointed as an attorney for a family member there's less of that scrutiny but in both types of cases something went badly wrong with people not having regard to what they you know believed they couldn't couldn't do so back a few years ago there was a case involving Mrs Buckley who had appointed her niece as her attorney under a property and affairs lasting power of attorney I think things possibly began to go wrong as is quite often in these cases where you know care fees don't get paid and it then alerts the authorities to you know something might be going on it ends up with the public guardian bringing a case to the court of protection basically to ask the attorney to account for money gone missing produce documents so has somebody blown a whistle there have they yeah and, and this happens quite often i did a study of it uh, quite sadly and i, I went through a number of cases and the amount of times where the, the, the whistleblowing was triggered because the relative charged with looking after the person's affairs hadn't paid care fees for a while and the care home informed the local authority, safeguarding local authority informed the Office of the Public Guardian and you know the amount of times that happens is quite amazing, really. So that, there's a pattern with that, and the, and the OP, the OPG, the Office of the Public yeah. Guardian, they have jurisdiction over this, don't they? Well, the jurisdiction is probably not the right word, is it? It well, no, they've got jurisdiction and statutory powers, where the lasting power of attorney is is registered, okay. which it has to be for you to use it, and the old style enduring power of attorney has to be registered. So they have jurisdiction so long as it's as it's registered but I think people when they're appointed as an attorney can think they can do what they like but you know even apart from the court of protection you know there's a fiduciary duty a financial duty on an attorney at at common law under the law of agency where you are expected to keep accounts and you're expected to be able to produce documents anytime so ignorance is is no real defence that's just the way it is as an attorney you'd be expected to do those things and that's what happened in the case of Mrs Buckley where the Office of the Public Guardian brought the proceedings in the Court of Protection and asked the niece to account for 
money having gone missing and, and to produce accounts and documents. It transpired that she had sold her aunt's house for £279,000 and out of that had taken a sum of more than £70,000 to set up a reptile breeding business. Wow, a reptile breeding business. Yeah. Can I just say now this is... <laughs> This is a subject close to my and my family's heart. We have a neighbour uh, who, who we found out has, uh, has some snakes and, and my wife is absolutely terrified that these snakes are going to appear in our house at some point. I'm sure, I'm sure yeah. they're not because I'm sure, one, they're not deadly and two, they're all under supervision but uh, every so often I'll get... Perhaps up. we should say it's somebody near where you live. <laughs> yeah, all right. <laughs> so, so there's somebody near where you live that owns reptiles, and uh, y- your wife is quite fearful that they they're going to escape from their captivity is, and come into con- your house. She is concerned about that. She's concerned. Uh, I get a, a nudge in the night sometimes. Uh, you know, have I have I checked all the windows and the doors are closed yes. and, uh, and the, the to- toilet seat. And the toilet seat. Yeah, yeah. So, so I, I'm I'm anxious to hear what happened to the reptile breeding investment. So apparently the niece knew somebody who would sell her a reptile breeding business and she claimed that she had done it in good faith because she'd been told by the seller of the business that she could expect to achieve a 20% return in two years. So it was all done with aunt's best interests at heart. But, you know, the judge said the thing about this is if you're looking after your own money, fine, do what you like. But you're not looking after your own money. You're looking after, you know, an elderly relative in a care home who needs to have her care paid for, you know, and, and you're, you're doing this. Um, so she was, you know, removed as, as an attorney for her aunt. So a get-rich scheme involving investment in reptile... <laughs> Reptile businesses is not yeah. is not probably the best thing to be looking yeah. at. Not in no. somebody's best interest. I mean, it's not a joking matter, actually, is it? Really, it's uh, somebody's funds that they've saved up all their years, isn't it? And invested that, that you know what they need to keep them going for the rest of their days. But uh. well, that's right. It was you know the, the house was was sold. This money was ploughed into a reptile breeding business, and notwithstanding the returns that she was claiming, the judge wasn't impressed. And it turned out after a, a further investigation by the Office of the Public Guardian, it turned out it was at least 87000 that she'd put into the business. And we don't know whether it failed or not, but, you know, the, uh, the judge wasn't impressed anyway. And it's interesting that, isn't it? I, I mean, I don't know what your take is on that or what the judge's actual, what he really thought, but this person may have felt that they were acting in good faith. They may have had some feeling that that was in the the well, the, 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 the person's the best interest. That's the thing. And, and we see that again in the next case that I'm going to talk about, where in the court proceedings, the, the persons who have been asked to account for what they'd done with various bits of money filed a statement which explained it all away because they they felt that they were doing what was in uh, their great aunt's best interests and that was the case of Gladys Meek which was uh, another case in the court of protection where an elderly lady again in a care home had lost capacity and, and had dementia 
and her late husband's great-niece and late husband's niece both applied to be appointed as deputies for Mrs Meek. It's a similar kind of thing where the Office of the Public Guardian, you know, becomes alerted to the fact that, you know, something is not quite right. And in this case, the suspicions of the care home staff became aroused because whenever the nieces visited Mrs Meek, there was always a big argument about what she was allowed to wear or not allowed to wear and the amount of money was tightly regulated in what she could spend. I mean, that part of the case doesn't go on to become very relevant. But, you know, the judge noted at the start of the case, and and I'll read what he said about him because it's quite interesting. He said, from time to time in this judgment, there are references to a dispute between the applicants and the care home about the kind of clothes Mrs Meek should wear. This is rather like the subplot in a play by Shakespeare, inasmuch as it is slightly subversive and distracts from the issues on which the court is required to adjudicate. Now, I, I don't know how much Shakespeare you've read, or, well, you're well-versed in Shakespeare. Practically none, <laughs> I mean, I can't think of a subplot <laughs> about clothes. There's lots of imagery, isn't there? Mm. Uh, in Macbeth, there's the, the Thane of Cawdor lives. Why do you dress yeah. me in borrowed clothes? To, yeah. That's my one quote from Shakespeare. Yeah. But I, I think the judge is probably just saying, you know, you, you'll notice lots of arguments about clothes. <laughs> but in this case, you know, the argument about the clothes was indicative of the more systemic problem that, that was going on. Mm. So it transpired that Mrs Meek had an estate of of roughly half a million and the Office of the Public Guardian brought proceedings in the Courts of Protection and asked the the great niece and the niece to account for money having gone from Mrs Meek's account and they were quite open about it and they told the Office of the Public Guardian well this is what we've done with it, this is what we've spent and this is why we did it and their rationale was Okay, Mrs. Meek has got about half a million. She's 92. She's not going to live for a great deal longer on balance of probabilities. If we leave her with 200,000, then that's okay. 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 (laughs) Were these these people qualified actuaries or...? No, well, you know, the judge noted in the case that they had taken no legal advice whatsoever. And even in the proceedings themselves were not legally represented. They put in this witness statement that said this is what we've spent the money on and we want the court to retrospectively approve it please thank you very much okay and what they had spent the money on was fifty-seven thousand pounds payments to charities which seems quite commendable it does Um, until i think the court protection sent a visitor to see Mrs Meek to ask her her views so far as she was able to express them Mm. about these particular charities and I think some of them she said oh yes they're very good like the Christadelphian church said oh they're very good Mm. Um, and another one was bird charity I can't remember if it's the RSPB or not she said they're okay, but I couldn't support birds. <laughs> so, so these were not all charities that were close to her heart? As it transpired, okay. some were more so, some were less so. Perhaps it was guesswork by the deputies, I don't know. Then, apart from the money to the charities, deputy number one had bought herself a Rolex 
watch okay. for £18,000, a ring for £16,000, an Alexander McQueen handbag for £995 and £20,000 cash. So they, they've accounted for it in quite detailed oh, yeah. accounts. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, well done. Okay. Um, deputy number two had spent £10,000 on two rings, £17,000 on an Amiga watch, two Mulberry handbags coming in at £1,085, and cash of £20,000. Uh, in addition to that, there had been gifts to family members of £62,500. They'd also bought themselves uh, an Apple computer for £1,300, and they'd bought themselves a car each. Um, Deputy number one had a mini countryman for £25,000, and Deputy number two had a Ford Fiesta Okay. Uh, for £19,393. So so commendably detailed, yes. but not really what the job of an attorney is, or, or, or a deputy, deputy, a deputy in this case. That's right. Was there rationale then that they and the people who they were benefiting were going to be inheriting well, under the terms this of a will? Or? This is exactly, really, really good point, because this is the other thing I was going to come on to. In this case, yes, that, that was also the case. So not only had they got this rationale of, well, you know, she only actually needs £200,000 to, to pay for her care, but ultimately we're the beneficiaries under her will, so we're going to get this all anyway. And you find that that is another common misconception. And interestingly, what actually happened in this case is that when she died, which I think was sadly not too long after you know, so, well, she didn't need the £200,000, so they were proved right. Um, <laughs> they, were, they were correct <laughs> yes. on that projection. That, that's right. Yeah. By this time, at the, at the point of her death, she'd had a deputy, a professional deputy appointed in a law firm. This is obviously before she died. He bought proceedings in the court of protection to have a statutory will authorised because it wouldn't be equitable that her estate should left to these two people who already benefited massively. And, and the, the, the application also called in the the security bond, which is a form of insurance that the deputies have to take out. And so it managed to, the money from the insurance bond replenished her estate. So in the end, she didn't suffer the, the net loss. That's one of the positive things, isn't it, about a deputyship, that for the deputyship to function, for the order to be made at the outset, a bond has to be entered into, which gives this level of protection, doesn't it? And it's more than just an insurance policy, isn't it? It's a form of insurance policy, and, and, and the benefits of the policy is that the insurance company will just pay out without having to prove actual fraud on the part of, of, of a third party. So that's the benefit of it. But even though it meant that her estate didn't lose out in the end. It's not a path anybody would want to go down, and they mm. completely misunderstood the remit of their uh, their role, didn't they? Uh, because the role of the attorney, the role of the deputy, is to act in the person's best interests. That doesn't involve making those kind of judgments no, that they were making. That, but they, right. they, they could have gone, I suppose, if they really thought that was in their best interests, maybe from a tax planning perspective, that her estate was large enough to cause an inheritance tax issue and that a way of planning for that, had she been capable, might have been her making gifts. If she's not capable of making gifts, you could make an application to the courts. Because a deputy is an attorney's 
our power to make gifts is very, very limited to birthdays, Christmas, you know, that that sort of thing. So anything beyond that, like for tax planning purposes, then then yeah, deputies or attorneys could bring an application to the court for the court to authorise gifts. And the court usually will, if it's satisfied that the person is going to be left with enough money to pay for care should they require it for the rest of their lives. Mm. And and preferably that the whatever gifts are being made are out of disposable income for that could be facilitated. But the point is you make an application. Yeah, you don't just go and do it. You don't just, you don't just help yourself uh, and then justify it after the event. The more general point is that, that none of these people had taken advice about the things that they thought, well, we could do this or this is a reasonable thing that we're going to take or we can rationalise why we're doing this. That's right. And, and part of it is this misconception that they're old, they don't need the money yeah. and B, well, I'm going to inherit it anyway. And, and I had that in a, in a case that I dealt with a few years ago where there was an elderly lady whose husband had just died and she'd gone into a care home and a family member who was the sole beneficiary under her will had moved into her house and living there rent-free and using her car and making withdrawals from her bank account and, and as a similar thing just you know assumed the rights um, over her property because she was old and it didn't matter and because he was going to benefit from the inheritance her, her entire estate in her will anyway so why not just have an advance benefit from that now just to reiterate the, you know the misconception that people aren't managing their own money they're managing somebody else's money and there's a great expectation that, that goes with that and people need to be clear that if you're in that position and you're ever not sure about anything just to make sure that you get correct proper legal advice about it so coming back to to my kind of work and of course you did my kind of uh, general private yes. client work uh, yourself didn't you yes. for, for for many years so yeah. you've got some experience I would imagine of some of the things that that I want to touch on they're not really case studies but like I said earlier they're drawn from experiences or things I've seen over the years and and the first thing I wanted to really talk about was was wills so we spend a lot of time preparing wills for people it's a really important thing to do in the last podcast I did we were talking with Mike from Bruin Dolphin even he and he's not a lawyer said what's the most important thing you can do get your will sorted so it's really really important but the other really really important aspect of it is making sure it's done right that it's done by the right people that you're holding them to account we were having a chat about this before the podcast started Anybody can set themselves up as a will writer, can't they? You don't have to have any qualification whatsoever. I could end school without having any qualifications whatsoever and I could set myself up as a will writer the next day. Get the will writing software, subscribe to that, set myself up. But would everybody be comfortable with instructing somebody at that kind of level? And how would they know what kind of level the person was that they were instructing. Now, it's a bit tricky, this area, because sometimes we can get a bit snobbish about this or get ourselves into territory where we're accused of trying to operate a closed shop. Because traditionally, we solicitors say, ah, oh, well, you want to instruct solicitors to deal with this. You don't want to instruct will writers because the will writing sector 
are they're responsible for all the ills mm. in the will writing world they're not as regulated or they're not regulated at all in the way that we are and you shouldn't instruct them now i don't really subscribe to that point of view i think the point is you want to instruct a quality outfit and there are quality will writers out there and there are quality solicitors out there but there are a wide spectrum of both kinds of legal service providers and not all solicitors who say they can do wills are brilliant at it mm -hmm. and it's the same with will writers my message to people is firstly to be careful about that and to think about you know who you're instructing the next thing is to think about the cost there's a wide range of cost structures for wills out there you'll have seen stuff on the internet things popping up mm. i don't know what what's the cheapest you've seen a will done for or offered offered out at, on the internet 79 pounds 79 yeah okay i think i've seen 19 pounds 19 pounds 99 19 pounds 99 plus we'll, a pen <laughs> plus a pen or we'll do it for free and again a punter could say to me oh well edward you would say this you're a lawyer you know this is but yes it is our livelihood and um, yeah maybe we would say this wouldn't we but you pay for what you get if somebody's offering to do a will for you for nothing or for £19.99 or even £79.99, you've got to really question why it would be that they are offering it to you at that level. Is it actually, by the time we complete the exercise, going to be that cost of zero to £79.99? Or if it is really that cheap, what else is going on here? Because nothing is free. If the service is free, I'm probably the product. Like I said, you pay for what you get. And to do the job properly and for people to be in business and make a profit out of doing the job, and they need to make a profit if they're going to stay in business, and you want the person who's holding your will to stay in business because you want the will to be there when you die, it should be a kind of a long-term relationship. They've really got to be remunerated properly for doing the job properly and traditionally i suppose the idea has been that will writers will probably be cheaper than solicitors it depends that isn't always the case but always make sure you've got whoever is doing the will nailed down on what the cost is going to be at the start and don't assume that cheap means bad but also don't just assume that really expensive means it's going to be the best thing ever that's right and i think you're right that be careful what comes attached because it's perfectly reasonable for a firm, whether they're solicitors or, or will writers, to want to make a profit because it means they stay in business. But in order to do that, you, you cannot achieve that by charging cheap prices of wills. There's got to be another means whereby you obtain the financial reward. And there's instances I come across when I used to do your type of work where it was either the will was cheap because as part of the deal you'll appoint us as your executors or in one instance where it was a package that wasn't cheap at all it was thousands of pounds but it just covered everything it covered the cost of your will the cost of coming back and like a free coffee refill come and make your will again and again and again but like a coffee refill you probably get to about two and you want to go to the toilet and you've had enough <laughs> Um, so, uh, but, but also part of the deal was, you know, we'll administer your estate at a slightly discounted rate. So, like you said, it, it's, it's, you know, looking at the fine print of what, comes, what, what could come attached. 
with a bargain price. I'm just making a note of the free coffee refill because it's quite an interesting business model. I think well, if you want to go down that route. I'm not sure about that. I think that the idea of if you pay this very large price, this will include this, this and this, and will include a discount on your estate. Mm-hmm. I mean, there'd be a limit to the number of free refills you're going to get, or actually, like you yeah. said, you'd want. But in terms of administering your estate, if it's a will not 10% off the cost of administering your estate is a kind of meaningless thing anyway, isn't it? Well, there is that. And also, you'll probably come on to talk about this in a moment. But, you know, the freedom of choice of, of who you decide to appoint as executor, because I think in this instance, it was like, it was already assumed, well, you're going to appoint us, obviously, but, you, you know, you'll get a discount. This point about appointing executors is exactly what I wanted to come on to next, because this is something that you, you do find it can be something that's attached to a cheaper will service not always you see it where the person who's preparing the will is it's horrible to say this but I feel from what I've seen almost maneuvering the client into a point where it's assumed that they will appoint the firm as executors and that there isn't a discussion about whether there's a choice about that, there's just an assumption, almost like it's automatically going to be drafted into the will without any prompting about discussion of what other choices you've got or, you know, wouldn't you want a family member, wouldn't you want a trusted friend, etc., etc. Now, in many cases, there are really good reasons why you would want to appoint a solicitor or a professional advisor as your executor, but that should always be something for discussion. It should always be the choice of the testator, they should never feel like they're under pressure or there's a manoeuvre or there's an assumption that that is what's going to happen in all cases. And, you know, in the cases that I've seen, sometimes I'm concerned that those things have happened. And the other concern that I've had in a recent case is that this has meant that the clients got themselves manoeuvred into a situation when the estate is being administered, the fees that are going to be charged for administering the estate are far more than they themselves would have accepted mm-hmm. and are far more than the people who are actually beneficial from their estate think is reasonable, but they're trapped because they don't have a choice because once the person who's got the will that appoints these professionals as executors has died, then it's the executors who are in control. And the executors then, if you've got family members or beneficiaries who are saying, well, hang on a minute, we're not, we don't really want you as the people administering this estate, Mm -hmm. or we've read the terms and conditions, and we're not too happy with the terms and conditions, or we don't really understand them, or we've got these other people who we'd like Mm -hmm. to administer the estate because they did this really good job here you don't then have that choice because the executor is in control. And actually, you can't force them out. I mean, I don't know whether you've had any cases where, you know, you have been able to use that word again, manoeuvre executors out where the family or the beneficiaries didn't want them. But really, there isn't, if they're going to stick, there isn't really any way to force them. You can't really go off to court to get them pushed out because the court will, I think you'd agree with this, Neil, the court would say, they haven't done anything yet or they haven't done anything wrong yet we're only going to remove an executor if they've done something wrong that justifies their removal as an executor or there's stuff that they should have been doing for quite a long time and they haven't done that so it's all about choice and making sure that you've you've got the choice and one of the things that's a, a traditional 
feature of administering estates, again, you would have come across this in your time practicing in this area, is charges based on a value, a percentage of the value of the estate. The point then is about when we're coming to actually starting the process of administering the estate. So the person has now died and it's now the executors and we're actually administering the estate. It's having a choice or having a range of options. And a proper informed choice. A proper informed choice. So that if one of the options is to appoint a firm, then the conditions and the costs attached to that are completely transparent and also makes sense. You want to talk about where somebody might be told, well, it's going to cost between X and Y and it's going to take between X months and Y months. So let's say I uh, we haven't got one of these wills where the professionals have been appointed as executors, but it, mum and dad and their wills appoint the children. So the children... Uh, on the let's say it's the second death of mum and dad the children are appointed as executors they come to see us or they come to see any practitioner what are the things that I think and I think I'm right on this that they they would want to know or they'd want to have nailed down before they confirm yes you're the people we want to administer the estate you're right they want to know how long each element of the process is going to take they actually want to know as well what is the process they may have some experience of dealing with estates before, but they may have absolutely no experience. Or they may have dealt with, you know, one aspect of an estate, but they, they, there's different aspects in this particular estate. So what are the features of this estate? What needs to be dealt with? How do you do that? What is applying for a grant of probate? Because people hear about that. Does that mean there's a dispute? Does it mean there's something contentious? Does it mean things are going to take years and years and years? Is it like some Dickensian novel? Is it Jarndyce and Jarndyce? I think that's the case. People often mention that to me. They're worried that's what's going to happen when they hear the word probate. No, it doesn't. I mean, it might mean that, but it doesn't just because it's you've got to get a grant of probate does not mean that. It might be something that's tied up for years. If, for example, there's a dispute within the family, if there's a challenge to the will, all of those things are possible. So a discussion about the specifics of the estate, what assets there are, what are the values, what features have we got to tackle? For example, have we got to pay inheritance tax? What kind of inheritance tax reporting have we got to do? What kind of paperwork do we have to have lined up to deal with transfers of investments, sales of properties, uh, sales of investments? What kind of investments have we got? Have we got certificated shares? Have we got one great big investment portfolio? Have we got a couple of investment portfolios not certificated? Have we got foreign assets? All these things you want to have a discussion with your advisor or the person you're considering as appointing to deal with the administration of the estate at the outset of the outset of the matter, bring all of these points to the table, allow them to consider them, but you will want to know, right? Well, how long is it going to take to get me to the point where we've got the grant of probate? How long do you then think it's going to take from that point to have everything wrapped up? When is some cash going to become available? When are distributions? going to be made we're not being mercenary but we'd like to know when it is that the money starts coming in and we'd like to know when it is that you project that the whole thing will be finished off because we'd like closure on the thing and we can then move everything on we can get on with the grieving whilst you deal 
with these aspects keeping us informed as we go along how long are these aspects going to take and actually the practitioner should be able to sit down and work that all through it's project management there may be parts of it where they say look i can tell you that's going to take three months but if x happens it could take longer or you're telling me there's the potential for this disappointed beneficiary or this family member who doesn't benefit to bring a challenge or to be disgruntled and, and cause upset in the course of the administration of the estate. Now, I may not be able to tell you how long it will take if they bring a, a challenge, but I can tell you how long I think these aspects will take if they don't bring a challenge. And I can tell you what we can do and we can crack on with and we can complete if we do have to face a challenge whilst dealing with the mm. dealing with the challenge separately. In our case, we're lucky because we've got a contentious probate advisor who can advise on those kind of issues. But that won't be the case in all firms. But all of this is good project management. And any practitioner who says that they can't get a handle on that at the start and can't give timeframes with caveats that are better than well it could take anywhere between three months to two years which you know you you will see that occasionally uh, or it's impossible to say it isn't impossible to say it should be possible to set up those kind of parameters and the other point then is having got that information it should then be possible for the practitioner to plot out how much time it's going to take to do the work who's going to be doing the work at whatever hourly rates because not all the work will necessarily need to be done at a you know a yeah. partner rate there'll be a range yeah. of rates within the firm how long that's going to take and and what the cost should be in relation to all those aspects now you might end up with a range of costs but you hit on on this earlier mm. it's not sufficient to come back with a range of costs that's so wide that it's meaningless so you know i've seen people say oh well anywhere between five thousand to twenty thousand or five thousand to fifteen thousand i don't think that's good enough if you've been able to sit down you've got the information you can plot out all the things that we've been talking mm -hmm. about you should be able to narrow the range better yeah. than that and it's only ever going to be acceptable if the person providing the range explains why it's a range and why it's that range yes. because of those two specific reasons, you know, whatever they are. Yeah. So, for example, we talked about a potential challenge to an estate. So it might be reasonable to say, well, I have to give a wide range because there are these wide variables. I think it would be better if, if you know that there's a possibility of a challenge to say, OK, well, I think this cost or within this narrow range um, uh, for those aspects of the estate that are non-contentious or if we don't actually have a challenge. If we do have a challenge, then I, I can scope out that work from the pricing that I'm giving you and we can look at that as a separate item if that challenge yes. arises. But it's, you know, it, uh, so actually what I'm getting at, I think, is that better than a range it really should be possible in i think 90 percent, possibly more than 90 percent of cases if the job is being done right at the beginning not just to give a range but to give the option of a fixed fee because again with the fixed fee although you're committed you can scope out those aspects where there are variables like we've discussed so uh, here's a fixed fee 
But this does assume that there's no challenge, that there are no contentious aspects. Yeah. It does assume that these particular aspects over which I don't have complete control or any control work on this basis. They go along this track. They happen within this amount of time. If they don't, then this fixed fee mm -hmm. doesn't apply. Yeah. But otherwise, here's the fixed fee. Yeah. Again, it's all about project management. Yeah. Uh, so from my perspective, yeah, in 90% of the cases that I deal with, I will always, well, not always, because I've just said 90% of the time, in 90% of the time, I will be able to give a fixed fee as an option, or there'll be a range of fixed fee options. And I think it comes back to what you're saying. It, it, it's describing proper options that have got a proper rationale behind them, mm. you know. And context as well. Yeah. We've covered off what you need to be nailing down at the outset of the administration of the estate where you are the person who's appointed as executor and you're making your choice about who's going to administer the estate. The other question then is, what if the firm that you're dealing with are appointed as executors? Do you have any choice then? Well, we've already touched on the fact that the executors are the executors and you can't really demand or force them to step down. You can have a conversation with them and you can hope that if you never think the relationship's going to work out, that they might see sense and question whether, even if they're going to earn fees out of dealing with this estate, it makes sense for them to be working with you when you don't want them over a period of what could be 12 months, 18 months, could be two years. Yeah, I mean, that can work sometimes. I'm just thinking from a case from Donkey's years ago where somebody came to see me uh, after mum had died and it was a firm that had been appointed in the will and the will had made, been made about 25 years ago there'd been no real close contact between the deceased and the firm since that time and the family member was like well what can we do and I, I think we wrote and said you know it's never going to work out um, you know because like my client hates you already <laughs> I, I, not precisely those terms, but you know, it, it, it's it's going to be a difficult, uh, long relationship. And in, in that case, you know, the firm said, "Yeah, fine." That's right. I think the sensible firms will see that and make that judgment. But so I've seen that. I've seen it the other end, where just for whatever reason, um, whether it's pound signs or what or pride they just will not come off it and the relationship starts off badly and it just mm. doesn't get any better and what a horrible way to have to deal with a process over over many months but there we go mm. so we're in this situation or the scenario is um the firm are appointed as executors and we talked about you know how my suspicion that in some cases a firm might have maneuvered themselves into that and and I, i'll kind of paraphrase something that i've seen on a, a will writer's literature which is one of the reasons why you do wonder whether it's maneuvering mm. where it talks about um why it makes sense for that firm to be appointed as executors and it talks about oh well when you die your family their their concern their concern is going to be they want to lay you to rest um, 
in the most appropriate manner and, and winding up the estate. Well, that's important to your family, but that's not going to be uppermost in their mind. Mm. In other words, the inference, you know, your, your family, they want to grieve and you don't want all this to get in the way of the grieving process. And, you know, I, 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 we'll take care of all that for you. I'm just concerned at that point how somebody could be laid to rest in an inappropriate manner. Well, I, I just, it's again, it's all coming back to the. the it's just words. It's it, words, and and all this point about actually what it's really doing is removing choice, mm. uh, and that's not a proper discussion. Talking yeah, yeah. about when you're making your will and and having that kind of emotive. I mean, it's, actually, it's just gubbins. It's just words, like you say. It's not helpful. It's you know. Actually, who do you trust? Who would you really want to wrap up your affairs? Who's best place to do that? In most cases, that probably is your family members or a f- trusted friend. It might be an advisor in addition, but there's going to be a good reason why you want that. Mm-hmm. Um, and having a discussion about that, you know, not, not, well, what do most people do or what do most of your clients do? Uh, having not had a proper informed conversation <laughs> about it we're quite happy to be appointed as executors but but not just default to that we want to have a discussion with people about the choices the range of options that they've got our brand our strong point would be that obviously we would offer that somebody would be laid to rest appropriately um in the right in the right place (laughs) at the right time (laughs) not before time I just it's just like it's just meaningless stuff. One of the points there is that you end up tied in with a, a pricing structure uh, that is predicated on um, uh, hourly rates, uh, a, a, a projected range uh, that could be you know that is time based that right at the early stage is talking about anywhere between two percent to ten percent and a value element on top of that. And no ability, because the family members, the beneficiaries are not executors to control that or to really interrogate that. So if you're not appointed as executors, uh, you're the beneficiaries, try to have the same kind of conversation that we've been talking about with the practitioner. Try to get in front of them and lay out what's there in the estate and nail them down in the same way that you would mm-hmm. if it if you were the executors yeah. and get them nailed down on the question of fees as well. You're not the executor, but you do have similar rights yeah. as an executor would in terms of information mm-hmm. about costs and challenging unreasonable costs. I want to kind of wrap things up with a very, very brief point about another crucial aspect of estate administration. Uh, and one that I'm not sure is always being dealt with by everybody in the way that it should be, and that is estate accounts. And you touched on accounts earlier, not estate accounts, but you were talking about um, keeping records, accounting to the OPG or accounting to the Court of Protection, um, and a kind of common law duty to keep accounts uh, and produce um, records. Uh, And the same thing applies in the administration of an estate. An executor is meant to keep accounts. They are meant to be able to account for all the movements, the financial movements in the administration of the estate. Frankly, I don't see how you would be able to begin approaching the administration of the estate if you don't keep those kind of records. There's no prescribed format 
for the accounts, but anybody who's obtaining a grant of probate, they are confirming that those are things that they will do. Um, and the difficulty, I suppose, with there not being a prescribed format for the accounts is that what passes for a set of estate accounts is there's a wide, we talked about wide ranges, there's a wide range, and you may have seen this, um, some accounts are great, they tell you the whole story of the administration of the estate, but other accounts tell you practically nothing. I am keen that consumers, clients, understand this and, and hold the people who are dealing with the administration of the estate and beneficiaries, who are residuary beneficiaries, so they're not getting a set amount of money they're getting a share of the estate therefore they're entitled to see the accounts at the end of the estate that they're aware of this and that they scrutinize interrogate the, the kind of information that they're provided with or should be provided with at the uh, during the course of the estate and that they hold the practitioners to account and challenge if they don't think it's mm -hmm. good enough things i've seen will be you know sets of accounts that really don't tell you anything they tell you maybe what's come into a solicitor's client account uh, and what's gone out of a solicitor's client account but that will only tell you the money that's come into the client account mm. and what's gone out it won't necessarily tell you everything it won't tell you what a date of death balance on a bank account that was in somebody's estate was. There may have been a load of movements on that account before it closed and it came into the solicitor's yeah. client account. So what happened? Um, and you might say, well, there wouldn't be much difference, but there could be huge differences. Uh, and if that job is not done properly, if it doesn't tell the whole story from this is what the estate consists of and these are the values of these parts of the estate at the date of death, right through these are the deductions during the course of the administration these are what's gone out of out of bank accounts these are administration expenses this is interest mm -hmm. these are investments so here are dividends that have been earned mm -hmm. we've liquidated these investments so here is what the date of death value was this is what they were sold for so this is the profit or this is the loss compared with the probate value right through to a distribution account so you can follow everything from the date of death to the point the last penny's distributed and it balances if you're not getting that information you're not you're not getting the full the full job if you're paying for a full administration of an estate and the accounts are not showing that whole story from beginning to end you're not getting what you're paying for so a plea a call to arms to the population as a whole or not the population <laughs> to, to the to the uh, probate facing public yeah. that this is important and don't necessarily just look at the the end figure yeah. on the distribution account look at the whole thing follow the money and scrutinize it and challenge it if you think it's not showing you the whole story from beginning to end Otherwise, what are you paying for? Thanks to Edward and Neil for lending their expertise. Yet more proof that lawyers don't bite. If you need legal help from either of them, please get in touch through lblaw.co.uk. That's lblaw.co.uk. Thank you for taking the time to listen. If you found the conversations helpful, please remember to follow, review and share the episodes. Speak to you soon. That was The Legal Lounge from Lanyon Bowdler Solicitors. 
Visit lblaw.co.uk slash podcast for helpful resources. And please do follow or subscribe on your podcast app so you never miss an episode.